morning to you. And as always, it is a delight to see you. I say that because last week I had, a do- I had an appointment with my optometrist. So it's a delight to see you. <laughs> Would you turn in your scriptures, please, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. And I'm going to read verses 9 to 19. Luke chapter 20, commencing at verse 9. Jesus went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some, not all, some of the fruit of the vineyard. One presumes that the tenants also shared in the bounty of the vineyard. But the tenants beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be! God forbid! Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest Jesus immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Mm. It's an amazing parable. Now I'm sure that you have read this parable many times in your private devotions 
and I'm sure that you've studied it in your home groups and KYB. But have you really understood it? Let me ask you another question. How many of you have ever read or watched the film adaptions of books like George Orwell's Animal Farm? Or William Golding's Lord of the Flies? Or Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird? Anyone here ever read all three of those books? Okay. Mia, well done. Were you meant to do that as part of your school or was this your private reading? Bit of both. Bit of both. Well done. Have you read one of those books? Okay. Anyone not read any of them yet? Okay. <laughs> Mia, you've got to talk to your granddad about this. <laughs> They are not an easy book to read when you understand what they're really about. They are all works of fiction, making socio-political statements to expose the evils, corruption and injustices of the times in which they were written. For example, in Animal Farm, George Orwell created an allegorical world where a group of farm animals rebelled against their farmer only to end up under a different type of totalitarian rule. The story was written in 1945 to criticise Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Union. As you remember, the people had rebelled against the Tsar in the very early years of the 20th century, only to find that they were taken over by Stalin, Stalinism and communism. They had replaced one form of rule by another, and the question has to be asked, were they better off? In Lord of the Flies, William Goldberg, Golding wrote it in 1954, explored what could happen in the absence of all social rules and order. And the question was to be asked, is man essentially good or evil? So is anarchy better than social rules and laws or worse? And the book Lord of the Flies investigates that. Is man essentially good or evil? It's a fascinating book. In the book To Kill a Mockingbird, written by Harper Lee in 1960, Lee focused on the tension and conflict between prejudice and hypocrisy on one hand and justice and perseverance on the other. 
And in the book, he explored the attitudes toward race and class in America's Deep South in the 1930s through the eyes of a young girl called, an eight-year-old young girl called Scout Finch and her brother and father. If you haven't read the book, watch the movie To Kill a Mockingbird. Absolutely brilliant movie. Absolutely brilliant. Church, in the, in the parables of the Lord Jesus, we see a similar style of communication, of using fiction to convey a deeper lesson for our living and understanding of life today. So really, what Lee and Golding and, and, and other writers of the modern era have done with this sort of socio-political allegory is nothing new. This is what Jesus did in his parables 2,000 years ago. And what sets the Lord's parables apart from other storytellers is that in the parables of the Lord Jesus, we come to understand and appreciate the wisdom of God. And we discover some of the invaluable, eternal principles and values by which he would have us live our lives today. In this parable of the tenants, the Lord Jesus began by giving the people a lesson in their own history before God. It was not a history lesson sanitised by the ruling authorities to justify their continued dominance and control in Jewish society. But what Jesus did in the parable was give a warts and all history lesson of how the Jewish people had repeatedly rejected their covenantal relationship, their responsibilities and their obligations to God. And it was not an easy history lesson for the people to hear. In verse 9 of the parable, the Lord Jesus began by saying this, a man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. And the reference to a man was an anthropomorphic way of describing God. And the reference to planting a vineyard was a picture of how God had established the nation of Israel. Now, this imagery of the nation of Israel as a vine or as a vineyard was not new to the Jewish people because it was part of their cultural understanding. They had understood it from way Old Testament times in passages such as Isaiah chapter 5, Jeremiah chapter 2, Psalm 80, and there are more. 
This was not a new understanding where Israel was described as a vine planted or a vineyard planted by God. In fact, throughout Jewish history, the vine became the very symbol of Israel and was depicted on their coinage and even placed over the doors of the synagogue. And one could say that the menorah, the candlestick, the seven-branched candlestick, is a representation of a vine growing. And so, as the people listened to the parable of Jesus, they would have clearly understood the meaning of the imagery being used by the Lord Jesus. In the parable, the Lord Jesus then spoke of the unfruitfulness of the vine, the unfruitfulness of the vineyard, the unfruitfulness of the nation of Israel toward God. And in verse 10, Jesus said, At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. This was not the only time the Lord Jesus had challenged the people about their unfruitfulness, about their unfaithfulness toward God. The Lord Jesus had expressed similar sentiments in passages such as Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 20. This was not a new theme. In fact, all of the parables of the Lord Jesus make it abundantly clear that God cares for his vineyard. God cares for the people of Israel and how he is disappointed that it didn't produce the expected fruit for God. Jesus declared in his parables that the nation of Israel had been entrusted by God to be a blessing to God and to the surrounding nations. And there would be a time of accountability. This he referred to as harvest time. There are some lessons here for us as well in our relationship with God. Again in the parable, the Lord spoke of how the owner, that is God, before he was a man, now it is the owner, both a reference to God, of how God had sent a servant to the tenants and how the tenants beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. Once again, the imagery used by the Lord Jesus was unmistakable. The people listening to Jesus would have clearly understood that the servant was one of God's prophets 
whom the people had ignored and rejected. In verse 11 and 12, the Lord Jesus spoke of how the master sent more servants who were treated in the same shameless way. You would notice that in the parable, the reference to God starts with a man, then the owner, and now the master. There is a progression of a, of a teaching about who God is in relationship to the people. And once again, in the hearing of the people, they would have clearly understood their nation's own history of ignoring and rejecting God's prophets. The Old Testament clearly records how the message of a number of prophets had been ignored and how they were mistreated. And we only need to look at prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, Micah, and, and many more. They were very, very poorly treated and they were ignored by the people. And in some cases, even killed. You only need to look at the example of Jeremiah. Do you remember what happened to Jeremiah? The people ignored Jeremiah's advice and they grabbed hold of him and they threw him down a well. And it was only by the kindness of a few people who at night time threw down a rope and rescued Jeremiah and he then had to flee to Egypt. It is in verse 13 that the Lord Jesus then changed his focus in the parable from the past, that is, with what the people knew and understood, to the future, that is, to prophetic revelation. In this verse, verse 13, Jesus said, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love, perhaps they will respect him. This is a radical change in any allegory or parable, parable because the Lord Jesus was revealing himself as the long-awaited Messiah. A huge difference, however, from the people's expectation was that Jesus was not speaking of a militaristic Messiah who would restore the political greatness of Israel. Instead, Jesus spoke of the Messiah, that is, the owner or the master's son, as one sent by the owner, by God, to restore the spiritual heart of the nation of Israel. Jesus was depicting himself as the Messiah, as a spiritual restorer. Not as a military might leader, but as someone who would restore the spiritual heart 
of the nation of Israel. If the people would listen. Not only that, the Lord revealed in the parable what the people of the nation of Israel would do to him. Because in verse 14 and 15, we read these words. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. That's prophetic. It is truly prophetic because unlike other storytellers such as George Orwell, William, William Golding and Harper Lee who never predicted the outcome of the future, they made their socio-political story set in the past but they never predicted the outcome of the future at all. Here, the Lord Jesus foretold the people that he would be seized, that he would be killed by the tenants, the keepers of the vineyard, which was a clear reference to the Sanhedrin, the political and religious leaders of the day, the members of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the ones who were meant to be the spiritual leaders of the nation and they were going to be the ones to take hold of the promised Messiah and kill him. Jesus foretold this. Those who should have known better And they were going to be the ones leading the nation of Israel into utter devastation. In verse 15, the ultimate question was then raised by the Lord. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? There's consequences. It's the question that many people ask even today. What will God do to a world that has repeatedly chosen to ignore, reject and even persecute him? It's a question for today. In the parable, the tenants thought that by killing the master's son, they would inherit and take ownership of the vineyard. It would be theirs, theirs to rule, theirs to have the full benefit. And in a similar way, generations of world leaders and test pots, both past and present, have sought to dominate and rule the world and set themselves up as gods by demanding loyalty and obeisance to their rule only to find that they themselves are eventually overthrown and replaced by other dictators and despots. And for those of you who have studied history, I'm sure you can name a few of these despots, these dictators, 
and even today. In verse 16, we read the response of the Lord Jesus. He, that is the master, God, will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. They won't inherit it. It will be given to others. Now to the general listeners of the parable, they heard the words of the Lord Jesus speaking of a time of great sorrow and calamity for the nation of Israel and they were afraid. God forbid, may this never happen. These words of the Lord Jesus were also a clear message to the would-be usurpers of the vineyard. It was clear that they would face judgment because they had rejected the master's son. The question has to be asked, did the leadership of the Jews, the members of the Sanhedrin, did they understand what Jesus was saying? Definitely yes. They understood the lesson as well. They understood the import of the parable. Because in verse 19 we read, The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest Jesus immediately. Because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. They knew And rather than repent and get them their lives right with God, they chose to exercise their power to hang on to their power. Despite all the warnings given to the people, they still didn't see and understand the consequences of what Jesus had prophesied until it was too late. The Jewish leaders plotted arrested and ultimately killed the Lord just as Jesus had prophesied in the parable. The nation of Israel then entered a time of great turmoil that resulted in their destruction. Within 37 years of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the Romans overthrew Israel. They destroyed Jerusalem and they tore the temple apart stone by stone and threw the stones, huge rocks, huge stones, over the edge of Temple Mount. And it has been in my lifetime that this rubble has been removed and exposed the level of the destruction. For those of you who have been to Israel, to Jerusalem, you see you see, even now, some of the stones that are still at the base of Temple Mount. 
they were pushed off. The temple was destroyed. That was in AD 70. A second failed uprising occurred from 132 to 136 AD. That's a hundred years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this second uprising led to over a half a million Jews being killed. That's a huge death toll for those times. That's a huge death toll. Men, women and children were just slaughtered. And those that weren't slaughtered, many more were sold into slavery. The men into the galleys, the galley ships of the Roman Empire, the women into who knows what. And at this time, there was also a massive depopulation of the Jewish people in Israel and in an attempt to erase any memory of the Jewish nation. Emperor Hadrian, who ruled from 117 to 138 AD, he wiped the names of Judea and Israel off all the maps and replaced it with Syria-Palestina, from which we get the modern-day state of Palestine. It was Hadrian, in about 135 AD, who changed the name of Israel and Judea to Syria-Palestina. Church, we cannot ignore or argue with history. This parable of the Lord Jesus was clearly recorded decades before its fulfilment. It was written down in the gospel decades before it was fulfilled. The challenge today remains for each person, each family, each community and each nation. What do we learn from the life and the words of the Lord Jesus? What do we learn? Do we just say he was a prophet 2,000 years ago and ignore him? Do we just say he was a good man and ignore him? Do we kid ourselves that, well, that's past, but I'm in today. I make my own way now. What do we learn from the life and the words of the Lord Jesus? If we want to build a good life for ourselves, for our family, our community and our nation, we must heed the message of the Lord Jesus. We can choose to reject his life and witness. We can choose. We have that choice. We have that free will to choose to reject Jesus and to usurp God's place in our lives 
by placing ourselves in the highest place. We have that choice. But to do so has consequences. And the consequences are clear. And the consequences are sure and certain. We either choose to go our own way or we choose to build our lives on the foundation that God himself has set before us. We can choose to make the Lord Jesus the cornerstone of our lives against which everything else is measured and finds its true reference and definition. As we read in Psalm 118 verse 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Do you want to follow Napoleon Bonaparte? He wanted to be the small g, God of Europe. He wanted to unify the whole of Europe under his leadership. Mao Zedong took charge of China as the Japanese departed at the end of the Second World War. And some of his policies led to over 10 million Chinese people dying. Adolf Hitler, he thought he was the reincarnation almost of uh, Napoleon. He wanted to control the whole of Europe and he did so by a bloodbath. Pol Pot, well we know what happened in Cambodia. He killed nearly a third of the population. The people that he wanted to rule, not serve, to rule. Idi Amin. Mm. And Stalin, of course. Josef Stalin. Are these the people that you want to base your future on? People like these? These dictators? These despots? Who are only there for, to ingratiate themselves with the wealth of the countries and not to serve the interests of the people? Or will you put your trust in the Lord Jesus? Will you make him the cornerstone of your life against which you will make every judgment and evaluation in your life? Let Jesus be your cornerstone. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we learn the lessons of history and choose not to repeat the mistakes. May the crucified and risen Lord Jesus always be the cornerstone of of our lives. May we be as wild vines grafted into the true vine of the Lord to bear, king, to bear kingdom fruit for him.
as we read in John 15 verses 1 to 8, and it's not the whole lot, I'm taking parts. I am the, this is what Jesus said, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Let your fruitfulness for God be your faithfulness to who he is and everything he stands for. And may this parable of the Lord Jesus speak to all our hearts today. And may the lessons of the Lord never be forgotten. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this parable. And thank you that it endures to our reading today. And Lord, may we learn the lessons of the past, just as the people of Israel were taught by Jesus. May we learn the lessons for our life today, that the Lord Jesus died for each one of us, bearing our sin and shame and in his resurrection gives us new life, new hope, and a new way forward. And may we learn the lessons of the future, that we might live all our days to honour you and be a blessing to you. For we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you, brother.